The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Our text today is Romans 7, uh, verses 14 through 25. And so we looked at this passage last week, and today we're going to uh, finish that. And so uh, you, we're going to go ahead and begin uh, by reading the text of Romans seven fourteen to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the, thing, the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in, my, in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. When Heidi and I were newlyweds and going to seminary, car repairs were always pretty stressful. That's because like most seminary couples, we didn't have a whole lot of money uh, to pay for things to get done. And in my little apartment, I didn't have very many tools or the ability to do much myself. And so, uh, early on after we got married, I remember one of our vehicles needed new struts, and so I was really excited when one of my friends volunteered to help me replace the struts on the back of my car. And so, uh, he, he worked in an auto shop there in town at the Sears Auto Shop. That's kind of crazy, you know, like we don't even think of Sears having an auto shop, and some of you probably don't even know what Sears is, but, uh, but Sears had an auto shop. He worked there, and and so he had the tools, and he was confident he could do the job, and so we bought these struts, and, and he came over one day, we got the car jacked up, and uh, took the back tires off, and uh, we, were, we were all in on getting this project done. Well, the problem is that, is that we didn't account for a really big issue, and that is we, we lived in Detroit, and so in Detroit, the, the roads are salty and wet for several months. And all that salt and all that moisture is very corrosive. And so we started cranking on this, this bolt with a breaker bar. And sure enough, we popped off the head of this bolt. Now, of course, then we thought it'd be a great idea to try again. And so we put the breaker bar on another bolt and started cranking and pop, you know, off comes the head of the second bolt. And then we realized we're not going to be able to do this. And so now... Uh, instead of saving myself money, I had to take it somewhere where they had a torch where they could heat it up and get that bolt loose and had to pay for someone else to tap out the bolt that we had busted off. And so instead of saving myself money, 
I had to spend more to fix the mess that we had made. And uh, have you ever been in that sort of situation? You think, man, I've got this great idea. It's awesome. And you jump head first into executing your plan. And then after you try for a while, you realize this is not going to work. And your only option is to eat the investment that you've made and to just lose out on all the effort that you've put in. It's, it's a hard pill to swallow, right? Well, that sort of parallels Paul's experience in the text that we just read. Now, last week, uh, I, I gave an overview of this passage, and, and, and last week I argued that, that this passage is, is, is describing Paul's failed efforts as a Pharisee before he met Christ to, to achieve righteousness through the law. So, so I do not believe that this passage is describing his present experience as a mature Christian believer. No, instead, I believe this passage is describing his, his, his failed efforts as a Pharisee to, to earn salvation. And, and I'm not going to re-preach my sermon from last week, for which you're all thankful. And uh, so if you are curious about why we, we, we made that conclusion, because it really uh, does really affect uh, how you look at this passage then you'll just have to go back and listen to that sermon on Sermon Audio or on our, our YouTube channel. But, but that said, um, this passage uh, describes how, how Paul had become highly invested in earning salvation through the law. He looked at the law of Moses as a young man, and he thought that he could earn favor with God by keeping it. And, and Philippians chapter 3 tells us that Paul made incredible progress. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Uh, at least from a human perspective. He was blameless according to the law. But but when Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus, he realized that he had been chasing a hopeless dream. He could never be perfect. And as a result, he says in Philippians 3 verse 8, that he now counts all that effort, all that investment that he had made in, in earning salvation by the law, as rubbish, or you could say trash or garbage. And why did Paul's efforts fail so miserably? And why will your best efforts to earn salvation also fail? Well, our text answers that rules alone cannot produce godliness. Rules alone, specifically the law of Moses, but you could extend that out to any other law. Law cannot by itself produce godliness. And that's an important truth for every unbeliever to come to grips with. We, we all have to understand at some point, if we're going to be saved, that I cannot earn the salvation of God. And as well as Christians, we need to remember often that, that I need something more than a standard if I'm going to achieve righteousness. I need grace to change me. And so today, uh, last week, well, well last week, we, we kind of gave the overview of the whole thing. We did the, you know, the 30,000 foot, you know, focus on the forest view of the passage. And today, I, I want to walk through the smaller sections and, and go verse by verse through Paul's argument in this text. So, so the first major section of Paul's argument is in verses 14 through 20, where, where Paul teaches us that sinners cannot obey God's law. Sinners cannot obey God's law. And verses 14 through 20 are built on two big assertions that Paul makes in verses 14 
and 18. So, so his first big assertion is, in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, now to appreciate that statement, we, we have to back up and think about this verse's place in the context of Romans. So from the very beginning of this book, Paul has been arguing that the law of Moses cannot make anyone righteous. And the Jews thought that they could earn salvation through the law. But, but Paul has said, he has argued, that, that the law cannot make anyone righteous. No, instead, all that the law can do is reveal our sin. And to some extent, make our sin more severe because we're not just sinning, we are rebelling against God's law. And, and Paul anticipated that some might hear all of that and it would be particularly confusing and troubling to the Jews. And so they might ask the question that Paul raises in verse 7. Is the law sin? If, if all it can do is reveal sin. And Paul answers in verse 7, may it never be. The law is good. So the problem is not the law. What's the problem? The problem is me. I'm a sinner. And verses 8 through 13 then go on to use Paul's failure as a Pharisee to, to achieve righteousness through the law to prove the two truths that he restates here in verse 14. All right, this is not new, but it's really important. So first of all, first truth, the law is spiritual. So what's he mean by that? Well, he simply means that the law is from holy God. And it's based on God's perfect knowledge of, of spiritual, eternal realities. So, so again, he says, there is nothing wrong with the law. But there is something very wrong with me. What's he say? He says, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, I argued last week that, that verse 14 continues Paul's personal testimony that he began back in verse 8 uh, of his failed efforts as a Pharisee to, to achieve salvation through the law. And so and it's important to note that, that he does switch. And, and one of the big arguments, it, it is a complicated issue, all right? We, we talked about that last week. And one of the reasons that a lot of people think that he switches from his testimony pre-conversion in verses 8 through 13 to his present experience in verses 14 through 25 is because he switches from the past tense to the present tense. But, 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 but I argued that, that, I, that when he switches here, when he says, I am a flesh, he, he's not actually just suddenly moving from the past to the present. He's, he's, just, he's doing what we think of as the historical present. So like I said last week, you know, there I was in eighth grade. I'm walking to my locker. Ben hits me over the head with a book. And it's a way that, that, we, that we, we talk about the past to, to dramatize it and to bring it to life. And I believe that's what he's doing here. That, that he is bringing us into his past frustration. And, and a big reason why I believe he's still thinking about his pre-conversion life is because he describes himself as sold into bondage to sin. And I just can't see how, how Paul would describe himself as a mature believer as sold into bondage to sin after he said in chapter 6, verse 14, that sin shall not be the master of a Christian. So, so yes, all right, we're still sinners. We are still sinners, every one of us. But sin is not the master of God's children. But, but Romans teaches 
that before Christ, before you get saved, every unbeliever is a slave of sin. We're all born to this world hostile to God and incapable of fulfilling the law. So, so once again, Paul asserts that the law is not the problem. I am. And then he explains. And so verse 15 describes his frustrating defeat. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Now, now keep your finger here and, and turn over to Philippians chapter 3, because I, I do think it's important to, to balance what he says here with what he says in Philippians chapter 3. So Philippians 3, Paul is, is rehearsing his testimony like he does here in Romans chapter 7, but with a little bit different perspective. And we're going to pick up in verse 3 for the sake of context, though we really want to focus on verses 4 through 6. So Paul says, we are the true circumcision, speaking of the Jews, who worship, um, actually though, never mind. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's talking there about Christians. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then look at these credentials. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So Paul there tells us that before he was saved, he was very proud of his standing as a Jew and of his ability to keep the law. He had done quite well, and he saw himself as the best of the best, spiritually speaking. And haven't we all met people like that? They think they are so spiritual. But, but of course, in, in their efforts to, to prop up their own spirituality, they ignore all the ways over here that they actually fall short and sin against God every day. But, but at times... Returning to Romans chapter 7, Paul had to face reality. And the reality that sin just kept bubbling to the surface. And you can see his bewilderment in verse 15 when he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. Have you ever heard a criminal say something like that? You know, they commit some horrible crime. And then they say, I, I don't know what happened. I mean, I'm a good person, and, 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 and I, I, that wasn't the real me. That wasn't me that did it. I, I have no idea where that came from. People say that sort of thing all the time. Of course, our, our secular world as well wants to believe that we are all good at heart. That down deep inside, we're, we're good people, and there's just bad things that happen to us that drive us to do bad things. But the reality is, is that despite all their efforts to to squash the reality of the sinfulness of the human heart, sin just keeps bubbling to the surface. And they have no ability in their worldview to explain why that happens. Because they don't believe in the depravity of sinners. But of course, those of us who believe the God's Word know quite well that we are broken. Our sin frustrates us. But our sin should never surprise us. 
A Christian should never say, I don't know where that came from. Because we know that it comes from right down inside of us. We are darkened sinners apart from the grace of God. But, but the legalist, when, when Paul's a legalist, he didn't get that. You know, Paul had built his identity on his own righteousness. And, and therefore, every sin that he committed was an assault on his person. And he says here in verse 15 that it was frustrating and perplexing. And, and therefore, he, he reaffirms the major themes of verse uh, 14. He says in verse 16, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So so even though Paul fell short, he could see that the law is a good thing. And and you know, that's true of every unbeliever. Now, now people will, will, will yell in the streets that they hate this book. But we saw in Romans chapter 2 that down deep in their conscience, there's, there's something in them that identifies with the law of God and wants to do what God says in His Word. Because God in His common grace has given all of them a conscience. They're, I mean, yes, they're, they're, they're darkened and all that, but there's a part of them that wants to do what the Bible says and to some extent, they actually do it. And, and so God's law is good. We, we can see that. And, and I think it's good for us as Christians to remember that as well. Now, 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 obeying Scripture is not always easy. In fact, oftentimes it is very hard and costly. But we always need to remember that God's law is loaded with wisdom and grace, and it is a good gift of God. So, so we should love God's law as His gracious path towards, towards intimacy with God and protection from foolishness. So, so I hope... That, that all of us here would say we love the law of God. And it is our wisdom and our help. And, and, so, and so Paul here says, first of all, that the law is good. And then he also affirms in verse 17 that sin dwells in me. So again, the law is good, but I am a sinner. Now, so it's not in the sinner's capacity to keep the law, no matter how hard he tries. You know, for example... I mean, I could train my whole lifetime, and I can strain as hard as I want, but I will never pick up a locomotive. It's not going to happen. Why? Because I don't want to? Because it's not in my capacity. I am not picking up a train. And similarly, sinners can try all they want. They can try all they want to, to keep the law and earn salvation before God. But it is not in our capacity. We cannot live up to God's standard. It's because we're sinners and because God's law is holy. And then Paul builds on this with his second major assertion in verse 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now, this is a a complicated but, but absolutely fascinating verse. So for one, uh, notice that, that it sounds like Paul contradicts himself. Because he, he says, nothing good dwells in me. But then he turns around and says, the willing, specifically to do the good, is present in me. So, so how can there be nothing good in him, and yet at the same time, there is a desire to do what is good? Well, well, well the answer is, is that in context, when he talks about the flesh, that the flesh here is primarily 
our, our bodies, our, our physical flesh. And, and we know that because he goes on and gives us a couple more clues. So, so look at what he says in verse 23. He says, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. So, so, so yes, there's oftentimes in the scriptures, our flesh is specifically the sin nature. But at times, it can also be a description of the body. And, and we see that as well in verse 25. He says, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with the flesh, the law of sin. So, so Paul here is not saying, I don't have a sin nature, because I do. And every one of us has a sin nature. And neither is he saying that, that the body is inherently evil, all right? Because it's not But the reality is, is that sin very often takes advantage of our fallen, sin-cursed bodies. And so it takes natural good desires for food, for sleep, for sex, and all sorts of other natural desires that God has given us. And sin twists those things into temptation to do what is evil. And so so all that is there. And that conflict is even there in the unbeliever. He says, the willing to do good is present in me. So so again, Paul, even in his unsafe state, had a conscience that agreed with the law. He wants to obey it. But what's he say? The doing of the good is not. He continually failed. And why is that? Well, it's because verse 14 says he was sold into bondage to sin. He cannot overcome his sin nature. He can't save himself. And every sinner has to come to grips with that reality. If if you have any hope of being saved. I mean, at the core of the gospel is coming to the end of yourself and recognizing I am not good enough and I will never be good enough. Now, Now, you might do some good things. That there might be aspects of your life for which you are rightly proud that, that you've been a good father, a good mother, or a good employee, or a good citizen, all those things. But at the end of the day, you will always fall short of the glory of God because your sin is too great. You need grace. And Paul continues to drive this home in verses 19 and 20 where he describes his defeat. And in verse 19, expresses the same bewilderment that he already expressed in verse 15. He says in verse 19, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Again, Paul wanted to obey the law. He didn't want to sin. And yet he sinned, and he sinned, and he sinned. And so do you. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's someone here that thinks, you know, someday, I, I know I've got problems, but someday I'm going to get over the hump. Someday I'm, I'm going to start to really do well, I'm going to start to obey God, and, and I'm going to be good enough that at the, end of the time, at the end of the day, God will let me into heaven. He's going to accept me because I'm going to be righteous. But please see that, that you are on an impossible mission. If you think that at some point you will be good enough, Because you don't have the power to overcome sin. So so this verse, verse 19, is you on your very best days. The good that you want to do, 
you will always fall short. So rules, religion, willpower, discipline, they will never be strong enough to make you righteous. You need grace. You need Christ to do in you what you can never do for yourself. Now, now before we go on, I do want to consider what verse 19 means for those of us who are saved. And, 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 I, and again, I don't believe that the verse 19 is, is fundamentally describing Paul's mature Christian experience. But, but I do believe it is true that, that, that while as Christians we are, we are, we are new creatures in Christ, we, we, also have, we are also sin-cursed sinners. We have sin-cursed bodies, we have a sin nature. And so they're very, well, while Paul here is not primarily talking about his mature Christian experience, the reality is, is that our experience as Christians is oftentimes not very far from this. Because we're still sinners. Because we still have flesh. And the New Testament does repeatedly describe the raging war that is going on in the heart even of the most mature saints. So Paul can say in Galatians 5 verse 17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There is a war in the heart of a Christian. And 1 Peter 2 verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So so there is a war raging in in the heart of every Christian. And and if you are striving for godliness, you know exactly what those verses are talking about. That's that's why so many Christians look at verse 19 and they say, that's me. Like, I want to do good, but but I so often fall short. And, and And I always want to encourage us in that, that that you know, if you walk, come into church today and, and you're just feeling overwhelmed with your sin, discouraged about your failure, frustrated at your lack of progress, that that's not actually a sign that maybe you're lost or something like that. It's generally a sign that, that you're doing the right thing. That you are fighting for godliness, striving to please the Lord. And so do not be discouraged. Keep fighting. Yeah, and I think as well, it's, it's important for us just to be realistic about where we're at and, and the battle we're dealing with. So yes, all right, Romans 6.14 says that sin shall not be master over you, but we will live in sin-cursed bodies until the day that we die, or Jesus returns, and the flesh isn't going away, and it's going to be hard till the very end. You're going to disappoint yourself over and over and over. So, if you're struggling with sin, do not go looking for the magic pill. Right? You, you can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and there's all sorts of books out there that promise you, if you follow these five steps, you can fix your sin. You know, or there's guys out there, they'll tell you, you just, you just need to get the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, go through this process, and boom, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and pow, all your sin goes away. There is no magic pill. I mean, the Christian life is called perseverance for a reason. It requires endurance and hard work. So keep enduring. And I'll say a whole lot more about our hope for victory in a little bit. So returning to the text, 
Verse 20 then concludes the section by saying, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, now, now we might think that, that here, and as well, verse 17, that Paul is somehow removing himself from responsibility for what he did. Kind of like the criminal that says, I don't know where that came from. That wasn't the real me. Right, but we know that that can't be what Paul means because throughout the passage, Paul clearly assumes that he is responsible for his own sin. Right? Over and over, he doesn't say, I've got you know, some like demon inside of me and it's his fault that I do these things. No, no, he clearly takes responsibility. So, so rather, verses 17 and 20 are just simply affirming a very important aspect of the theology of Romans which is that sin reigns over the life of the unbeliever. Sin is not just things that we do. It is a power that rules over the heart of those outside Christ. And even when the unbeliever wants to be free, he is stuck. He can't break free of sin's reigning power. And so he sins time after time and falls short of God's glory. So verses 14 through 20 teach that that sinners cannot obey God's law. We can't. We have no power to overcome sin's reign. It's a a disheartening reality. But we have to accept that reality before we will ever enjoy the solution, which is still coming, but not yet. So verses 21 through 23 build off this by teaching that sin enslaves the natural man. Sin enslaves the natural man. So it's been a while, so let's read Verses 21 through 23 again. It says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Now, now once again, Paul drives home the conflict that he experienced under the law. So, So on the one hand, He tells us that he wanted to obey the law, right? He tells us in verse 21, he wants to do good. And again in verse 22, he says, he joyfully concurred with the law of God in the inner man. Now, I mentioned last week that that those statements raise a a, a big challenge for for the view that I'm taking. And I I mentioned that for a long time, I was convinced that, that those two statements are things that, that no unbeliever could actually say. But, but, but while, while that is, well, while it's difficult, well, the unbeliever is opposed to God, you know, the reality is, is that no unbeliever is as bad as he could be, right? I mean, God's common grace keeps us and keeps all people from being as bad as they could be. And we talked last week about the fact that God has given even the unbeliever a conscience, And so they want to do good in some respect. They they desire to obey God's law. And and as well, I just think, if we just think in simplistic terms, let's suppose that we could bring Paul the Pharisee into this room. And we had Paul the Pharisee standing in front of us. And we said to him, Paul, do you love the law of Moses? What do you think Paul the Pharisee would say? Absolutely. And if we were to say, Paul, do you want to obey the law? What would he have said? Yes. 
He wanted to obey the law long before he was saved. And of course, there are plenty of religious people around us as well today who would say something similar. They love their religion, and they want to keep it. I remember several years ago, we were on a ministry trip in in an area of Utah that was a very dense population of people who were LDS. And we were running a backyard Bible club in this park, and uh, you know, so we're singing songs about Scripture and teaching, gospel, teaching the Gospel. And I remember we had a little break, and then this Mormon girl walked up to me who had been watching us. And this little girl, you could tell, she was heartbroken. That I, you know, she believed I was, I was lost. And she wanted to convert me to her religion. You know, and it, it wasn't insincere. I mean, she, she's committed to her faith. And she was committed to practicing her faith. And there's lots of people around us who who are the same way. They believe what they believe and they are committed to it. And that was Paul. He was zealous for the law. So zealous that he tried to stamp out Christianity because he thought it was leading people astray. And it's it's fascinating to me that, that in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13, Paul looks back at his persecution of the church And he says there, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I mean, he thought he was pleasing God. He thought he was doing the right thing. He wanted to do good. And so do many people today. They believe they are going to heaven because they believe they're good people. And how many times have you heard it? I'm a good person. Now, I have a sincere faith. I'm spiritual. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good Catholic. I'm a good Mormon. And and, and all that might be true from, from, from one perspective. But while Paul wanted to obey the law, he again confesses that without Christ, sin enslaved him. He says in verse 21, evil is present in me. And while Paul loved the law, he says in verse 22, I joyfully concur with it. What's he say in verse 23? He says, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. So all of Paul's efforts and his most sincere heart could not change the fact that he was a prisoner of the law of sin. we, We live in a world that wants to believe that you can be whatever you want to be, all the way down to being whatever gender you want to be. If you just will it, you you can will whatever you want into being. But God says that wanting to be spiritual will not make you spiritual. Wanting to be pleasing to God will not make you pleasing to God. You can't will away your sin nature. Because as he says here, we are all born prisoners of sin and there is nothing we can do to fix that. And so so therefore, no matter how sincere your heart may be, no matter how dedicated you might be to a particular faith or religion or or system of, of life that you believe is ethical and true, you are still a sinner who deserves God's judgment. And there is nothing you can do to fix that. 
And by the way, you know, that doesn't change. Well, and and so we need grace. And that doesn't change once we're saved. You know, so Christians, we we as Christians need to understand as well that that we can't will ourselves into godliness. You, You can't build enough fences around your life. Set up enough rules or safeguards that that you can create godliness in your heart. We need grace as well if we are going to become godly. And thankfully for all of us, grace is available. So verses 24 and 25 close the passage by declaring that Christ alone can rescue us from sin's power. Now, Now verse 24 has to be one of the most tragic and yet wonderful cries you will ever hear. You know, so, so consider where we are in the text. And Paul the Pharisee just said in verse 22 that he loves the law and he desperately wants to obey it. I mean, he gave his life to this. And yet despite his best efforts, he says that he is a prisoner of the law of sin. Paul couldn't escape his own condemnation. And when he faced reality, it was a horrible sight to behold. He had tried the best that he could, and yet he still fell short. And so verse 24 is his defeated, despairing cry. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And Paul had to admit the crushing reality that he couldn't save himself. He could never be good enough. And so on his own, He was hopelessly condemned. Now, that verse, verse 24, is the climax of Romans chapter 7. And Paul has argued from the beginning of this chapter that the law cannot produce godliness in the lives of sinners. The law cannot produce godliness. And Paul tried. I mean, mean, he was, like, if anyone should have been able to do this, it was Paul, right? Right? And he tells us in Philippians 3, you know, that he was born a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He is from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. He had all the credentials. He was set up for success as well as anyone possibly could be. But at the end of his journey, he's not celebrating victory. He is crushed by his defeat. He's not beating his chest saying, look at me, look at what I did. No, he is whimpering in agony. And once again, if you are holding out hope that maybe you can be good enough to earn heaven someday, please see that verse 24 is where your journey will end every time. You'll stand before God someday, defeated, crushed, and condemned. And if you as a Christian try to be changed solely through law and human effort, you're going to end up in the same spot. And that's a crucial reality that we all have to face. The law alone cannot produce godliness. But well, but well, Paul, uh, and, so, and so, so that's the reality you have to face. But, but that's an important reality. But of course, that's a dark reality, right? And Paul, you know, I, I believe, just gets to this point and he can't endure any longer with the darkness of what he's talking about. And so he has to give us the answer. And that's what he does in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So so I can't answer my problem. I can't fix myself. But there is hope in Christ. 
And so Paul follows the darkness of verse 24 with the brightest ray of sun. That Christ is the answer. And of course, we know the story, right? That Jesus came to earth. He, he paid the price for all my sins on the cross. And he secured forgiveness from my sin and alien righteousness in himself. And through his resurrection, he defeated sin's reigning power. And because of that, he is able to break sin's bondage and free us from its prison. So, you cannot rescue yourself, but Christ can set you free. And you can receive Christ and every benefit of his death and resurrection simply by believing on him. And so, if you have never received Christ then you need to come to the end of yourself as verse 24 describes. You need to admit that you are a wretched sinner who can never measure up to God's righteousness. And then you need to believe on Christ as your only hope. And John 1 verse 12 promises, as many as received Him, speaking of Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So you need to receive Christ. And in a moment, I'm going to come back to the application of all this for Christians because that's very important. But I first want to read, finish out the passage. So, so he then ends the passage by saying, So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, now to go back to the big controversy surrounding this passage, I mean, many people are going to argue that that conclusion tells us for sure that Paul must be describing his life as a mature Christian because, because he arrives at the gospel in verse 25a, and then verse 25b, he returns the struggle. So, so that struggle, they're going to say, must follow even his discovery of Christ. But, but I believe that it's, and that is a challenge, all right, for, for the position that I'm taking, but I think that it is perfectly fine, really, to view verse 25a as a parenthesis. You know, that, and Paul does this in Ephesians chapter 2, when he's walking through our depravity, and, and he just, at some point, he gets tired of, he, he's got to tell us there's grace. And, and so I believe that's what he's doing in verse 25a, is he's, he's giving us a parenthesis of sorts that he's going to fully develop when he gets to chapter 8. But then after that parenthesis, he goes back to the hard reality that he's been building from the very beginning of Romans chapter 7, which is that the law cannot produce godliness, and neither can any other religious system that is built on human ability. And that's why there had to be a transition from law to grace. You know, he said a couple weeks ago that, that really the purpose of Romans chapter 7 is to explain why Romans 6 verse 14 is true. Romans 6.14 says, um, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Why did we have to move from the age of Moses, the law of Moses, to the age of grace? And chapter 7 answers, because the law cannot produce godliness. And so sinners need something more than a standard of righteousness. We need power to live it out. And Christ provided that power when He rose from the dead. And He gives that power to all who are united to Him by faith. So, so what does all of this mean for those of us who are saved? So, so we know, right, that we're saved by grace alone, 
Christ alone, faith alone. And I think, hopefully we understand, that we are forever free from the bondage of sin and the law. And praise the Lord that churches like ours have done a great job of emphasizing that these realities, that salvation is by grace, not by works. But, but no matter how well we know that, we can easily begin to act as if Christian growth, my pursuit of holiness, is, is all about me and my effort. And like the Jews of Paul's day, our Christianity becomes a title that we wear and a checklist that we obey. Being a Christian, being a good Christian, means I do these 10 things and I don't do these 20 things. And if we're struggling in a particular area of our Christian life, what do we do? Well, we begin to immediately set up fences and guardrails and, and practical things to stop us from sinning. And, and of course, I want to emphasize that, that safeguards, strategies, all those things, they absolutely have their place. Right? The Scriptures tell us that we do not want to give sin an occasion. We don't want to feed the flesh. So if you are being a fool and feeding sin in your life, you need to build a fence to stop feeding the flesh. Those things all have their place and a very important, essential place. But as I said last week, the most important step that we can take if we are going to truly become godly people is that we need to build rhythms of life that are rooted in grace. You know, so Galatians 5.16 doesn't say that if you're struggling with the flesh, that, that you need to just you know, build more fences in your life. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the Holy Spirit is the key to your victory. He is the key to change. So, so you need to swim in the sea of the gospel every day of your life. And you need to depend on the truths that we learned in chapter 6. So remember what Christ did. And depend on what Christ did. Don't just try harder Run to Christ and lean on His grace. You know, Romans 6 verse 13 said, Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. You have to remember that you are alive from the dead and approach Christian growth from that standpoint. So, so don't just read your Bible, pray, go to church and obey because that's what good Christians do. No. We, we do those things because we believe that God's grace flows to us through His means of grace. So again, I, I don't just read my Bible because that's what I'm supposed to do. I read my Bible because this is God's Word. And God's Word changes me. There's grace that comes to me in this book. I don't just pray because Christians pray. I pray because going to the throne of grace is the place where I'm going to receive grace. And I don't just go to church because... Christians go to church. I go to church because I receive grace as I sit under the preaching of God's Word and as I worship with God's people. And even as I obey, I mean, walking by the Spirit, the, the, uh, the literal idea there is walking in step with the Spirit. So as I am sincerely striving to obey God's will, that the Spirit enables me to do that. You know, and so look at what Paul says in chapter 8, verse 13. He says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
So we need to fight in the strength of the Holy Spirit. So, so in conclusion, the law cannot produce godliness in the life of a sinner. So praise God that we are not under the law. We are under the age of grace. So let's walk in that grace by the strength of God's Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the direction that it gives. And we thank You especially today for the grace that has come to us in Christ. Thank You that He rose in victory over sin. Thank You that He conquered sin and death. And thank You that that all of that power is ours through our union with Christ. Thank You for the indwelling Spirit. Thank you for his work to change us and mold us. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are Christians. Lord, encourage our hearts. Help us to stay strong. Help us to endure in the struggle against the flesh. And I pray that your spirit would would give us grace this week to grow, to change, to mature into the image of the Savior. I pray as well for any who are here that, that are still trying to earn a place in heaven by their obedience to the law. God, please help them to recognize their inability. And I pray that today they would cast themselves on Christ for salvation. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace this week. Lord, help us, keep us, and strengthen us to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.